Just a reminder before we start, please subscribe and review our show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners discover the show. Frankly, it makes us feel pretty good. All right, here's the show. Hi there, and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein, and thanks for tuning in for our last show of a banner year of 2017. It has been quite a ride, and we thank all of our listeners for all the support over the last year. We love hearing from you. We love the feedback. This is a, it's a pleasure for me and for John Carl uh, over his perch at the White House to be bringing to you every week. Uh, we encourage you, as always, tell your friends about the show, subscribe, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Uh, and I just want to let you know that John and I put together a little year-end show, a look back at some of the interviews that we did this year that, that, that stuck out to us. I got to admit to you, I forgot about some of them. Um, if you're a loyal listener, maybe you remember them better than I do, but we really ran the gamut uh, through through um, through the top political figures uh, inside the White House, inside congressional leadership, um, in, in the governor's mansion, some of the most intriguing storylines of a, of a really wild year. Uh, we reached into the ranks of Hollywood and filmmaking and pop culture to bring you some interviews as well. So we had a great year. And again, thank you so much for listening to to us every step of the way in 2017. We, we look forward to hearing from you in 2018, when we'll be back uh, just next week with another fresh edition of Powerhouse Politics, along with Jonathan Carl. But in any event, here's our look back. Let's go back to January, before Donald Trump was even sworn in as president. Many took some time to look back on the last eight years of the Obama administration. What was his legacy, and what would a Donald Trump presidency look like to everyday Americans? So I pose that question to Republican Senator Tim Scott. It's going to be very interesting to have a young, healthy uh, president engaged in the world of politics even after he is uh, post his presidency. Uh, it's something that will be a new normal, and we'll adjust to it. The question I hope that we all seek to answer is how do we, as a nation and as leaders, move this country forward? Uh, bringing attention to wrongs is a very important role for leaders to do. Also, bringing solutions that are right is equally as important. I think you'll find us having conversations about those solutions, specifically in the area of jobs and education, where if you look at inner cities and rural areas, the reality of it is too many kids are not progressing forward from an educational standpoint in the rural areas that results in incredibly high overdoses and in inner cities it oftentimes leads to very high levels of crime we can diffuse both of those situations with the power of education the power of hope but we have to have policies policies that lead in that direction so let me ask you about the the sense right now on on Capitol Hill. You haven't been in the Senate all that long, but now you'll have yes, your, your first opportunity for united government, Republican control of the Senate and the, and the House and the White House. But at the same time, Donald Trump wasn't wasn't your candidate. Wasn't the candidate of most United States senators, most House members either. Are are you convinced that he is a conservative and will be a conservative president, or, or are you concerned, or are you fellow senators concerned that you could see a presidency that goes in other directions versus the ones that you and and so many of your colleagues have promised? The only thing that one should try to predict with our president elect is that it will be unpredictable. Yeah. Number one. Number two. Uh, he did not run, in my opinion, as a conservative. He ran as an agent of change. So we should expect to be equally unhappy with some of his policies from the right to the left. That's the one thing we'll have in common is that he will have an infrastructure program that may not be exciting to conservatives, and he will have a tax reform plan that will be 
I think, very exciting to conservatives. Uh, We will see the focus move towards middle America and folks working paycheck to paycheck. So whether that's the replacement of Obamacare with something that is far more patient-centric and private sector driven to a tax code that reduces uh, the taxes on the average person in the country working paycheck to paycheck and increases their take-home pay and also improves American competitiveness on an international and uh, international stage. Finally, what is this moment like for you versus the moment eight years ago? It's a diff- you're at a different position, obviously a slightly different stage of your life, uh, a different politics, and, and what it meant eight years ago to have a black man inaugurated. What is, wh- how, would you, how does this moment in history strike you versus the, the feeling you had in 2009? Rick, I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, very clear and, and somewhat personal on this uh, question. Uh, nine years ago, my grandfather was incredibly healthy. Uh, uh, African-American man born in 1921, raised in a very small town in South Carolina who never thought he could even dream, much less experience the day when an African-American became president of this, of this country, of our country. And he was, for the second time, uh, with tears in his eyes, I took him to vote, uh, he for President Obama and me for uh, Mr. McCain, and the, that moment should live forever uh, as an amazing moment where America uh, said that we want uh, a president who encourages and inspires the best of us, and uh, that was a hope. I think eight years later, uh, after a shift to the left that is too far from my appetite, uh, I, I look at the hope and the opportunity that lies before me my grandfather unfortunately passed last year. Uh, we live in a world now where we have a chance to take a conservative uh, paradigm and transpose it over the nation and hopefully do so in a way that uh, suggests and proves that there is compassion in conservative policies. Uh, and we fight for the soul of America and we fight for the best of America. And sometimes we'll get it wrong, but hopefully most of us will come together so that we can get it right. January 20th, Donald Trump became President Trump, and in his inauguration speech, he outlined the dark vision of America that he sees in front of him. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. And his America First agenda. America will start winning again, winning like never before. Many of the words uttered by President Trump that day were put on paper by chief speechwriter and policy advisor Stephen Miller. Early in the president's White House tenure, Miller joined the podcast to talk about how the first few weeks of the Trump presidency had gone. Well, I think what you've been seeing is that President Trump is governing based on the promises he made to the American people during his campaign. And I think that that's one of the things that the American people find most refreshing and most heartening is that. He campaigned on building a border wall. He campaigned on getting tough on trade. He campaigned on getting tough on refugees. He campaigned on defending America's interests and dealing with foreign nations. So these are all things that he campaigned on and that really cross party lines. I mean, you go all around this country. I had the luxury and privilege of being able to travel all across this country. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I joined the campaign uh, before the first primary ballots were cast. And If you talk to people, Republican or Democrat, many people feel like the United States has been the losing end 
of most international deals for a very, very long time. So, so if I can ask you to, to look back, and, and this is a, you know, a good time, we'll have many opportunities to do this, but look back over these, these two weeks, what's been the high point and what's been the low point? Well, there hasn't been a low point, but the... So there's always a low point, Stephen. I mean, well, for the, I understand that for, and you know, because you know me, that I, yeah. that I mean this with, with enormous respect and all present company excluded, but uh, for folks in the, um, in the media... Uh, and centered in New York City, Los Angeles, Washington D.C. Um, you know the idea of having a um, uh, a curtailment of migration from some of the most dangerous regions in the Middle East um, strikes them as a, an enormously um, disruptive event. Uh, but for the rest of the country, who are worried about their jobs, who are worried about their schools, who are worried about their ability to get a pay raise, who are worried about their ability to be safe uh, and to have a, a country that supports them. For them, those kinds of actions are the just first steps in bringing some kind of sanity to how we approach immigration policy in the United States of America. So there's a the divergence of perspectives in terms of how people uh, who are the who who reap the benefits of globalization look at things uh, versus people for whom it hasn't been an unalloyed benefit. Um, I think that divergence explains a lot of the difference between the polling data, which shows the enormous popularity of his actions. Um, and the response you'll see on certain uh, television networks and some newspapers uh, where they're, I guess, not happy that things aren't continuing on in the future the way they always have in the past. The headlines would come fast and furious after Trump was sworn in, starting with immediate backlash the day after the inauguration when the Women's March descended on several American cities. Just one week later, the president signed off on his travel ban, version one, barring immigrants from several Muslim-majority countries, along with a broader halt on refugees. He fires Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates for refusing to implement it. Both are challenged in court. On the last day of January, President Trump nominates Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. He is the man of our country and a man who our country really needs and needs badly to ensure the rule of law and the rule of justice. Much of the talk over the next two months centered around the Republican effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. House Speaker Paul Ryan conceded defeat on that bill on March 24th, encouraging the Senate to come up with its own. We did not have quite the votes to replace this law. Uh, And so, yeah, we're going to be living with Obamacare for the foreseeable future. Just a couple days after that, we reached the infamous benchmark, the first 100 days. We talked about it with the White House Director of Legislative Affairs, Mark Short. I think for many Americans, it's been a very rewarding 100 days. And they look at a change in where the direction this country is going. They look at America being stronger on the international stage. And they see the regulatory relief that we've provided that's helping to return jobs to this country. Some estimates say that by a combination of the executive orders and legislation that we've signed, it's roughly $18 billion a year in cost savings on a regulatory front. So for many of Americans, they're not looking at frustration. They're looking at terrific relief. To your point about this week, you're right. It's an incredibly busy week, but I think that's the energy that this president brings to Washington. Many voters voted for this administration because they were tired of the dysfunction in Washington, feeling like they couldn't get anything done. And so when they see all this activity and seeing that they will potentially have a health care vote, that they will look to, to make sure that we fund the government, that we're also introducing tax reform, and also, as you know, today, hosting senators here at the White House for briefings on North Korea, there is no doubt a lot going on the legislative affairs agenda, but uh, I think that's what the American people elected us to do. Coming up, the president faces tragedies. We are strongest when we are unified. 
on Powerhouse Politics 2017 in review after this. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba, Ariana Huffington, Issa Rae, Barbara Corcoran, Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics 2017 in review from ABC News. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. The country remained deeply divided in 2017. As the months went by, many were still revisiting that unforgettable 2016 presidential campaign. Hillary Clinton's efforts to win the White House came back into the spotlight in April with the release of Shattered inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. We talked to the book's authors, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, about what happened on election night. So earlier in the evening, uh, she was getting a call from uh, President Obama basically saying that uh, she needed to concede. And and they made it known on the Obama side at the White House that this was something that the president wanted. Uh, even when John Podesta, even after he, he appeared on stage at Javits, he was driving back and he got a call from the president as well saying, okay, come on, guys, this needs to happen tonight. Uh, and uh, so we detailed a lot of that in the book. Um, and then uh, we we take you back inside the room after Podesta uh, returns. And, and basically, uh, President Obama calls uh, and kind of in a consolation call, basically uh, wants to talk to her. And uh, Huma Abedin is in the room, has a uh, cell phone. Uh, she, she knows the president's on the phone. She says the president's on the phone uh, to Secretary Clinton. And according to those in the room, Secretary Clinton winces. Uh, it's a painful moment for her. She's feeling the weight of that moment. She picks up the phone and uh, she tells the president, I'm sorry. Uh, and so we detail all this in the book. Well, it, it's it, it's an extraordinary moment, you can imagine, especially with as much as, I mean, as much as it was the Obama legacy that was that was on the on the ballot, and and how much it depended on 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 her victory, um, but I, you know, all the talk going into election day would was assuming, as so many did, uh, that Trump was going to lose. Was he actually going to concede? Um, and then here we were that night, and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, we're in the we're in the opposite situation where." Hillary Clinton has lost, and we're wondering where's the concession. What I mean, what what was keeping her from going out there and 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 addressing her supporters in the Javits Center that night? Why why wait? Yeah, she had already. We we now know she had already conceded in terms of the phone call to to uh, uh, to Donald Trump. Why did she not go out and address her supporters that night? So um, there are two reasons. There's the one that they gave uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of in terms of the, they gave to the president and they gave to uh, David Seamus, the White House political director, which was that she wasn't ready to go out and give a full concession speech, that this was, a, you know, the end of a run for her. And she wanted to gather herself and gather her thoughts. And she had not uh, even reviewed her concession speech 
uh, you know, before before she congratulated Donald Trump on the presidency. So she had gone over the victory speech earlier that night, but had not even looked at the, uh, or at least not read a full version of the concession speech. Um, so there was that. But uh, but in talking to people, we also know that there was a pretty hot debate going on over whether it was possible that more votes would be found in uh, Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, and whether. Um, whether it was possible that uh, recounts would be triggered and, you know, might there be some way that she could still win this election and she didn't want to but go But she had already there. she had already called Trump. Well, by that, I mean, at, but at the time she had called Trump, by the time she called Trump, you're talking about two, 245 or so in the morning. I mean, it was, it was it was pretty late at that point and her view was she wasn't ready to make that speech. They didn't, okay. even, have a, they didn't even have a place to actually give the speech, we find out. Uh, they, people were, I was at Javits Center that night and uh, reporters were being kicked out around that time because they expected it to all be wrapped up. And uh, I think there was another event that they needed to set up yeah, for in the morning. Yeah, exactly. There, right? So they were scrambling actually to, to find a place for her to give the concession. President Trump made a number of big decisions during his first few months in the White House, among them on April 6th. He ordered an airstrike on Syria with 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles in retaliation for a chemical attack on civilians. On June 1st, President Trump announced his intention to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States. Then, two weeks later, President Trump faced his first national tragedy when Congressman Steve Scalise was critically wounded in a shooting at a congressional baseball practice. But both teams still played the game as scheduled to a huge crowd at Nationals Park. ABC's Mary Bruce joined the podcast to talk with the manager of the Democratic team, Pennsylvania Congressman Mike Doyle. It was kind of surreal because, I mean, I've been involved with the game for 23 years now. And and uh, we used to play in front of crowds of like 2,000 or 3,000. And, and the biggest crowd we ever played in front of was we finally hit the 10,000 mark uh, last year. Uh, but to have 25,000 people uh, in a baseball, you know, in your major league baseball stadium, uh, some of our guys were just looking around at the crowd. It was it was like it was hard to believe. Uh, and then the money, uh, you know, we raised money for three charities. And, and each year we try to do a little bit better. And last year we raised about $500,000 for the charity. And, and before the shooting, uh, we had on track to raise about 600000 and we were feeling pretty good about that. Uh, and, and then this terrible incident happens, and, you know, people start to, to pay attention to it. And, and in a seven-hour span, uh, an additional $900,000 come into the charities. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I left last night, we were approaching $1.6 million. Uh, for the three charities, actually four, we included the uh, fallen officer fund this year uh, to go to the Capitol Police. And this event has always been about unity, you know, about bringing you know the two parties together, putting aside your differences over baseball, at least at least for a night. And and now that seems to have taken on quite a new meaning. I mean, we we've seen all of these calls for that unity to continue to to maybe tone down some of some of the rhetoric out there in the country and and in the halls of Congress too. Is that going to stick this time? Do you think we're really going to see any changes yeah. in, in the way that we all are talking to each other? I, and I think that's the important distinction. Uh, I don't I've told people, look, uh, you know, we're not going to change our positions on the budget and on health care. I mean, this isn't about getting together in that sense. We have some real differences uh, with Republicans on those issues, uh, just as, as Republicans have differences with us. 
but we can express those differences in a civil manner. And I think that's what we're talking about, that just because you don't agree with someone's position on health care doesn't make that person evil. <laughs> you know, it just means they have a different position than you. Uh, and and I just think, you know, sometimes the rhetoric, not only coming out of, of members of Congress, but also the kind of rhetoric that you see on the Internet, uh, on social media, where people can be anonymous and, and be as rude and ignorant as they want, and there's nobody close enough to them to punch them in the face, then, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about, too. And the media uh, that tends to want to sensationalize the people that want to, you know, stick swords in one another as opposed to people that are doing things that are uh, unifying and positive. So I think everybody sort of has a role to play in this, and everybody needs to reflect uh, a little bit on their own personal behavior. Scalise returned to Washington in September. The baseball shooting would be far from the only tragedy that prompted a presidential response. Mass shootings in Las Vegas and Texas shocked the nation, prompted more questions about gun control. Hurricanes struck Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico. After Hurricane Harvey made landfall in Houston, flooding large parts of the Gulf Coast, Vice President Mike Pence visited hard-hit Rockport, Texas to see the storm damage. And I caught up with him there. We're going to be here today, tomorrow, and till it's done. But it's, it's not months, it's years. And uh, the, the official effort here will keep coming. What does we'll it mean? providing the resources. But the, to see these volunteers out at mm-hmm. this point, see them walking in and out of these homes, you know, being really the hands and feet of a generous and caring American public is really inspiring. What does it mean to actually see it firsthand, actually talk to the people that have had their, their lives ripped apart by the storm? Well, it's just heartbreaking. But at the same time, it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. Because what, what you see here, what, what, we, what we saw at that church in Rockport today is, is faith and resilience, and determination to rebuild. And uh, I, think, I think they know that the American people are with them. They've heard from their president. They've seen the efforts of, of state and local government that have been here since the very moment this storm made landfall. And, and we're going to stay here. I mean, if, if I have one message from the president of the United States... To the people of Southeast Texas, John, it's that we're with you. We're with you today, tomorrow, and we're going to be here until Southeast Texas is is rebuilt and recovers bigger and better than ever before. Now I've seen you here talking to the victims, helping clean some of the debris out. Did the president miss an opportunity when he came here on Tuesday not to meet with any of the actual victims, not to actually see firsthand the damage? I think what... I think what America has seen is the decisive leadership of President Donald Trump, mm-hmm. who took the unprecedented step of actually signing an emergency declaration before Hurricane Harvey made landfall mm-hmm. here in this area. The president convened the cabinet several times over the weekend, was in continuous contact. I think, I think the efforts that we've been able to make in conjunction with the outstanding effort of state and local officials here in Texas to, to do thousands of rescues and provide shelter and support and sustenance is all a credit president trump's leadership he wanted to be here as soon as possible early this week to be at the command center to make sure that all the agencies of the federal government were working in full cooperation and he'll meet with victims on saturday he asked me to come here today john he asked me to come here today to get to get out in the communities to be able to report back to him about the progress we're making and the challenges we face and and uh, the president and the first lady will be back here on saturday seeing victims. out with the families out in other areas yeah. but I can tell you that President Trump, uh, President Trump's full focus of this administration is 
is on the families that are affected, the communities that are affected, and as I told them all today, mm -hmm. we're here today, we're going to be here tomorrow, and we're going to be here under President Trump's leadership every day until we rebuild and restore Southeast Texas bigger and better than ever before. Coming up, the revolving door of White House staffers. I made a mistake on that, uh, on, on that phone call. I owned it. I've accepted the consequences. Powerhouse Politics 2017 in review. We'll be right back after this. Over 3 million businesses use Indeed.com for hiring. And independent research shows five times more hires are made through Indeed than any other job site. By creating the easiest, most effective hiring experience, Indeed helps businesses find great new people every day. Right now, Indeed is giving new users a $50 credit to post a sponsored job on the world's number one job site. Claim your credit at Indeed.com slash offer. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. From ABC News, this is Powerhouse Politics 2017 in Review. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Many powerful men were accused of sexual misconduct in 2017. Titans of Hollywood and the news media lost their jobs as women came forward to tell their stories. Washington was not immune to those allegations. Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, Democratic Congressman John Conyers, Republican Trent Franks, and Minnesota Senator Al Franken were all accused of inappropriate conduct. Today I am announcing that in the coming weeks I will be resigning as a member of the United States Senate. Perhaps no one has had more of an outsized effect on Republican politics in 2017 than Steve Bannon. Even after resigning as the president's chief strategist, he spent his time waging war on establishment Republicans around the country. Back in July, we spoke to the man who literally wrote the book on Bannon, Joshua Green, the author of the book Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. I think that Trump and Bannon have both changed Washington to a great extent but not in quite the way that they intended to. Trump has come in and smashed all sorts of political norms. I mean, he's almost created a slipstream for Mitch McConnell and Republicans to go in and, and smash their own norms. I mean, the idea that, that the Senate would pass a, such a far-ranging health care bill or try to pass, you know, without an open committee process, without hearings it's just absolutely unprecedented and it's hard for me to believe that that kind of thing would have happened under any kind of pre-trump normal circumstances i think the problem for both of those guys is they really thought they were going to come in i think bannon used the phrase i think i quote this in the book that they were going to employ a shock and awe strategy no no irony there right a shock and awe <laughs> strategy to come into washington and absolutely blow up the establishments of both parties. They were going to ram through this populist agenda. They were going to do all sorts of things, uh, not understanding that legislating and dealing with Congress is an entirely different animal uh, than campaigning, than reality television, than being a, a, a dissident outsider uh, publication like Breitbart News. And so I think these six months uh, have been a real education for both of them. So uh, last last question, Josh. I, I've I've um, I've been into Steve's uh, office uh, in the uh, in the West Wing. You know, he's got that uh, kind of kind of a, a small office off the same suite that has uh, Reince Priebus's office. And by the way, those two seem to have gotten along too. That, that, that that's another mm -hmm. interesting uh, thing. They, they they seem to have formed an alliance, which I would not have predicted early on. Um, and he's got, of course, the the famous whiteboard where he lists all of the promises. 
uh, that, that Donald Trump made during the campaign with check marks against those that he has kept so far. And, he, and you see on there, I was there, you know, uh, not long after they uh, decided not to declare a China currency manipulator. And there, you know, one of the big promises, declare China a currency manipulator. He doesn't whitewash anything. They're all there on his whiteboard, all the promises, mm-hmm. including the ones he didn't keep. But what is your sense on Bannon himself in that building? How long do you think he stays? Is he, is he a temporary guy or is he going to be there all four years? Or eight. I, mean, I think I think Bannon is. You're going to have to pry him out of there with a crowbar, and maybe Trump will, and and maybe Jared Kushner or Gary Cohn or somebody else will manage to maneuver him out of the White House. But but Bannon is, I think, despite his crazy man portrayal, pretty self-aware on a lot of levels, and he understands that no president except Donald Trump would ever have anyone like Steve Bannon in a position of power in the White House. Trump is, I think as Bannon himself put it during the campaign, not to me, but he called him a flawed vessel or a flawed vehicle uh, for these nationalist ideas. Uh, For better or worse, Trump is the guy that Bannon is stuck with, and he knows that. And he knows that if he's going to uh, be able to implement any of his ideas, it's going to have to be through Trump. Well, it turned out it would take far less than a crowbar to get Bannon out of the West Wing. In August, he resigned. And for 10 days in July, the White House press shop was thrown into chaos, first with the firing of Press Secretary Sean Spicer, then with the arrival of incoming communications director Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, as he was often referred. He lasted all of 11 days before being ousted by the new chief of staff, General John Kelly. I caught up with Scaramucci after the dust had settled as he took questions on Facebook Live. Question from uh, Hal Kubrick. Is there anything different you could do in your short and honorable time at the White House? What would that be? And leave aside the Liza, Liza interview, because I think you've made that clear. that You, you know, I mean, there were two approaches I could have taken. I could have taken more of a political operatives approach, and I could have laid very low in the weeds and built out the team. Uh, in hindsight, I probably would have had more longevity. But if I'm really more than 11 days, yeah, more than 11 yeah. days, if, if, if but if I'm being realistic, there were two or three people that wanted me to have the job and there were probably 200 people that didn't want me to have the job. And so if you look at the math of that and you understand the internecine warfare of Washington, uh, I was sure I was likely to be a short term no matter what. So you became really famous really fast in, in all of this. What's different from the, the, the private versus the, the public persona? That's now known about well, I, you know, when you say I become really famous, I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't really feel, quote unquote, really famous. Uh, the parody you on SNL. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I thought that was funny. I mean, although Bill Hader could do a better job, he needs more hairspray, a tighter tie. <laughs> you know, Mario Cantone, a fellow Italian, he probably understands the uh, the struggle better. You know, <laughs> but but I was just saying to my cousin who who came in, took the ride with me. My cousin's been putting auto glass in as an auto glass installer for 31 years. He's got his own business. He's incredibly successful without a college education. Uh, the people that I want to have like me are those people. Okay, if the media elites don't like me or somebody on the left doesn't like me or there's a public Republican establishment person that doesn't like my operating style, I'm sort of very, very comfortable with that. I like, I like being myself and I like expressing myself in an honest, declarative way. And I'll take whatever the positives are or the negatives of that, Rick. Okay, as we wrap up here, there's been a lot of questions that come in about your future. And uh, uh, we know you're back in the business world and yeah. back, back with that. Mm-hmm. Ro- Roseanne Cadu asks, what are your future plans? Do you think you can ever live down the days served in the White House and the events which followed? Are you going to write a book? Is there a star turn well, on I, SNL that's possible? I, listen, I don't know. I mean, could I write a book? I could possibly write a book. It'll be an uplifting book. It'll be a positive book. 
that helps people. It's yeah. not going to be a, uh, a tell-all tale or something like that. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my career. When someone says I'm going to be able to live down this thing, I, I, of course I'm going to be able to live down it. You know, listen, I got through the financial crisis. Uh, I've been fired. From, uh, I was fired from Goldman Sachs, rehired. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my career. Entrepreneurs have to take on some level of risk to achieve success. And with that risk, there's incumbent volatility. And so I'm comfortable with the volatility of the situation. What I don't ever want to do is change myself or my personal identity for the sake of politics or anything else. I want to be a plain-spoken person. I made a mistake on that, uh, on, on that phone call. I owned it. I've accepted the consequences. And I'm looking forward to the next chapter of my life with a lot of optimism and a lot of uh, positive can-doism. Any chance you'd appear on Saturday Night Live? You mentioned the Bill Hader impersonation. Get, get Lauren Michaels to call me, you know. And I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, look, and, I'll put and, my sunglasses for that. Coming up, President Trump's culture wars. You also had people that were... Very fine people on both sides. When Powerhouse Politics 2017 in Review continues after this. Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, Some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. And you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and subscribe today. I'm Good Morning America's Robin Roberts. Ever wonder how some people go through devastatingly hard times only to bounce back better than ever? This woman here losing her, I'd probably be dead. It took losing a limb for me to push those physical boundaries. I need to participate in my own rescue here. I gotta take my game to another level. Discover how others find unexpected inner strength in the aftermath of adversity. Hear their stories on my podcast, Everybody's Got Something. Check it out on iTunes or abcnewspodcast.com. You're listening to Powerhouse Politics 2017 in Review from ABC News. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. The GOP saw the high-profile retirement announcements from Senators Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, and a number of challengers came forward ahead of the 2018 midterms. The head of the Republican National Committee is Ronna Romney McDaniel, and we talked to her back in August. I always think the party is better served by following the will of the voters. So the voters determine who's best to represent them. Um, and, and that's done in primaries, robust primaries, like we just had for our presidential nomination. And, and the party's always laying the groundwork towards the general. And, and I think we come in in the end and we try to heal rifts that happen naturally through um, contentious primaries in different states. But we're always putting the landscape and the infrastructure in place towards how we're going to win in November. Because at the end of the day, I'm always going to rather have a Republican uh, than a Democrat who's going to vote for Chuck Schumer to be Senate Majority Leader or Nancy Pelosi to be a uh, speaker. So, but, but at the end of the day, it's the voters who are going to make that decision. And I think it's, it's beneficial for the RNC to stay neutral. And if you want to look at what happens when a party does put their thumb on the scale, you look at the Democrat Party and where they are right now with Bernie Sanders and their obvious preference for Hillary Clinton uh, during the last presidential. It's caused a huge rift within their party. Among the many things different about a Trump presidency is his willingness to wage culture wars. 
We saw this first in August after Heather Heyer was killed during a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, after a car drove into a crowd full of counter-protesters. President Trump defended the ralliers, many of whom were white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And he called for controversial Confederate statues to stay up. ABC's Mary Bruce and Mary Alice Parks talked about the president's both sides comment with Indiana Congressman Andre Carson. As so many people have pointed out, you know, condemning neo-Nazis and white supremacists really should be easy. And, you know, these ideologies are responsible for uh, enslaving uh, African ancestors in the U.S., killing millions of Jews in Europe. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have literally died fighting these ideologies. And you have entire segments of our population that are still struggling to overcome their legacy of discrimination and oppression. So our president took an oath to protect and defend the U.S., not to stand with his enemies. So I think his decision to stand up for these bigots and defend a domestic terrorist organization is disgraceful and, quite frankly, unpresidential. Why do you think he says these things? Is he simply appealing, you think, to a portion of his base? Do you think he really believes these things? I mean, you're part of the leadership team of the Congressional Black Caucus. I'm curious you know, if you can share with us a little bit of the conversations that maybe you all have been having. But is this simply what the president stands for, you think? Or is it just that he's you know, too stubborn to admit that he initially maybe mishandled this situation? And so that's why we see sort of a doubling down on some of these positions? One wonders if it's a combination of, of, of all of the above. I, I think that President Trump has a disturbing habit of standing up for the enemies of our country. Um, he has continually defended Vladimir Putin and Russia, you know, despite abundant evidence that the Russians tampered in our elections. And yesterday he defended people who, or a couple of days ago, he defended people who find common cause with Adolf Hitler and the Confederacy. And this is unprecedented amongst presidents. He needs to take a serious look at what it means to hold this office and find a better way to reflect the values of our country. So I think that if he's being Machiavellian, he's he's, he's now become the emperor without clothes. And it's, it's a sad sight. Um, I think that his posturing and his his provocations have fanned the flames of homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, uh, straight out bigotry and racism, discrimination against LGBT brothers and sisters. And to me, it's a sad state of affairs for our presidency and our country. In September, President Trump went after the NFL for allowing players to kneel in protest during the national anthem. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! He also criticized NBA star Steph Curry for preemptively refusing a White House visit, kicking off a larger conversation about political protests in professional sports. We talked with ESPN radio host Bomani Jones about how the NFL responded. And I thought it was strategically brilliant for Jerry Jones. Like, if you separate it from anybody's inclination specifically on the topic, this allowed him to be part of the same demonstration of full solidarity that the rest of the NFL owners have been on with this one. And it allowed his players, at least in theory, to make the point that they were kneeling as the others were, 
while also kind of neutering the effect of what they were doing because part of the point is to do it during the national anthem to raise the question as to whether or not this nation truly reflects what the flag and everything you know purport to be about and so jerry manages to get in there he gets his photo op he does not wind up looking terrible in this the players get to do a little bit of something, and then he is the owner of America's team, which people just have to really appreciate that the Cowboys are something different within this ecosystem. And this allows them to still be America's team. You can't be America's team without dudes standing for the national anthem, right? Right. So, so, so you think he, he's strategically brilliant, but I, I get the sense in your, in your analysis there's a but here. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the but is that what has happened in the last couple of days is that the NFL, as a corporate entity, has co-opted this entire measure of protest. Like, I mean, this is not terribly different than, like, when you see your dad wearing the same shoes as you. All of a sudden, your shoes ain't so cool anymore. <laughs> so when the people yeah. in charge are now, like, co-signing what you're doing, is it really a protest? And the owners have managed to do this in such a way that gives no attention to to the point of origin for this cause. This has nothing to do with police brutality or the treatment of black people anymore. What this was was a solid a statement of solidarity from the NFL against someone who dared impugn the greatness of this American institution. So did the owners, in your view, play into Donald Trump's hands? I mean, you, you, I saw one commentary out there from Senator Ben Sass, a Republican senator, who said, don't kneel because that's exactly what President Trump wants you to do. He wants to highlight divisions. But did the owners play into his hands by by making this no longer about what it was originally and, and neutering the impact of the protest and, and even the ability of players to, to have a say through that, through that mechanism. Well, the difficulty of knowing what is or isn't playing into Trump's hands is knowing what is and is not calculated that he's doing. I'm not sure that it's been thought this far ahead from him. Um, I do think, though, that Jerry Jones certainly did play into his hands in a way, because what Jerry Jones did was make standing for the national anthem compulsory, which is exactly what Trump is saying should be. You should have to stand for the anthem. And Jerry Jones, in effect, said, my team has to stand for the anthem. So if you want to do something before, that's fine. But you have to. So in that way, yes. In the other way that if you want to work on what I think is a fair assumption is that um, Trump wants what's going on in the league to be about him then that has certainly happened also. We can't forget that he's got a little bit of history with the league, and it's fair to wonder if he has a grudge against them based on his experience with the USFL. And the uh, Bills. So yeah, he never, he never got the Bills. Degree, they did play into his hands, but more than anything, it's playing out of the players' hands because the larger actual social discussion that has been generated around this is now gone. Coming up, a new administration and some big changes for many government agencies. I've never been one. Uh, to, to advocate that the EPA should should not be uh, in existence or doesn't have a very important role. We have a very important role. On Powerhouse Politics 2017 in review, after this. Hey there, it's Mara Schiavocampo from Good Morning America. Like so many people, I've struggled to find that perfect balance between health and happiness. Name a diet, I've probably tried it. Crazy workout plan, yep, I've done that too. But I learned it was my approach that was actually weighing me down. After losing 90 pounds, I discovered it's not just about reaching a healthy weight, it's about finding peace and freedom. I have a podcast called Motivated, focused on all things health and wellness. Join the conversation. Search Motivated on Apple Podcasts and subscribe today. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics 2017 in review 
from ABC News. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. It wasn't just the White House that got a makeover this year. Government agencies across the nation's capital came under new leadership and adopted new ways of doing business. The Environmental Protection Agency underwent radical change in 2017, rolling back a number of Obama-era climate policies. And it's now headed up by a man who spent much of his career railing against the agencies. ABC's Mary Alice Parks joined me to talk with the EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. You have been very critical of the EPA mission before you became uh, the Administrator, and uh, as Attorney General, you're known for suing the the EPA. Uh, you'd, you'd said earlier this year that it was justified for some people to want to eliminate the EPA, and of course we know the President himself has advocated for basically the elimination of the EPA. I'm curious, as you look at things like this, if there's anything changes in your mindset. Is there anything that you've learned in these last seven months or so on the job that say, well, I didn't realize this, or here is a critical mission, or do you still believe people are justified in saying there shouldn't be any? Well, I think the, I think one context to your, to your you know, the, the summary that you provided, my perspective, you can go back to 2013, 2012, as I was bringing litigation against the EPA, I said consistently, there's a very important role, a vital role for the EPA. I've never been one. Uh, to, to advocate that the EPA should should not be uh, in existence or doesn't have a very important role. We have a very important role, and I've said that consistently. What I, meant, what, what, what I said in that situation is that people are justified at times of feeling that way because of the response and the overreach of the last several years in cer- certain areas. But, Rick, from my perspective, in this situation, Superfund is an area. We are, we are absolutely the first responders in, in a general sense to those situations, uh, working with those private partners to make sure that they're, they're responsible for that and we hold them accountable. So that, that's a very important role. On drinking water, we have Superfund sites across the country that we have to ensure safe drinking water. East Chicago comes to mind. And to your question, if, it, if it's a threat, guess what we do? We work with Governor Abbott in Texas or Governor Scott in Florida, and we take bottled water in. Or we, whatever we have to do to ensure safe drinking water, that's what we do. So there's a very important role for the EPA historically and particularly in these kinds of situations. And finally, we had two interviews with filmmakers this year. The first is with directors Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. They released the documentary series Vietnam on PBS, and we chatted outside the Vietnam Memorial in D.C., where the names of thousands of veterans are remembered. I mean, that was the great challenge of the project, was to never lose sight of the human cost of the war and to be reminded of each name, as Ken was saying, but to understand not just what happened, but why. Why did our government make the decisions to send hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans to Vietnam to fight? Um, what happened when they went there? What happened when they came home? And what was going on in Vietnam? So we interviewed 100 people, 79 of them are in our film, from both American and Vietnamese perspectives. People who fought in the war, people who fought against the war. Vietnamese who were on the winning side, on the losing side, civilians and soldiers, men and women. And between collecting all these little pieces, all these individual testimonies, we've been able to intertwine this incredibly complicated narrative into what we hope is a coherent whole of 18 hours, where you start at the beginning in 1858 when the French begin colonizing Indochina, and you end today, and you are taken on an epic journey, almost an immersive experience, kind of a visceral reliving of the Vietnam War. And we hope, as Ken was saying, that by taking you on that journey, we ourselves have been on a journey to try to figure out what happened and make sense of it. And um, by the end, we think we shed some new light on this really, really important story. 
we benefited, us as individuals as well as filmmakers, from shedding our baggage. Uh, we have no preconceptions, no, you know, we don't have an axe to grind or a political agenda. So it was important for us to unpack what had happened and then try to repack it with the new scholarship, the interviews with the veterans and, and never-before-seen archives. I think also that unlike the Civil War and World War II subjects of films that we've struggled to tell, um, they, have, they, they have redemptive qualities. You know, the Civil War ended slavery and brought the country together and the Second World War did all the good things that it did. But this is a moment where we struggle to find those uh, redeeming uh, features. And, and what happens is, is that makes it all the more important to tell these stories factually right, to intertwine the narrative in a way that permits you to see the macro but also the, mi- the micro and figure out when and where you do that shift and how you move to North Vietnam and how you move to South Vietnam as well as to the streets in America or in the front parlors of America. And I think all of that conspires to make it kind of complicated to tell. But then in the end, so satisfying when you can do it because what you do find is that the redemption comes in the accumulation of these individual stories and moments of bravery, of courage, of caring, of love, of fellowship, all the things that we presume are absent in, in a horrible story about war, but in fact are present here as they are in almost every uh, event that we've, we've covered. And so it's been a great, great, great process for us. We've got just one final interview for you. It's with legendary film director Rob Reiner, who teamed up with Woody Harrelson for the film LBJ. He stopped by our studio in October. Could Lyndon Johnson be successful today in today's polarized climate? Or is that Are we missing the personality, or was he just such a sign of the times that uh, that was a moment in history? I think he could be. I think he could be. I think it requires somebody who has the strength that this guy has. Not to say that he didn't fear things, but once he kicked into gear, that was it. He was definite about what he needed to do. Then you also know how to know, you have to know how the levers of government work. Give you an example. What did Mitch McConnell do? Everybody gives credit to, to, uh, to Trump for getting uh, Neil Gorsuch in. He didn't have anything to do with it. That was done by Mitch McConnell knowing how to manipulate the Senate in order to make Merrick Garland not even come up and not even uh, get a hearing. That's understanding the levers of government. If you know that in your bones, you have a vision of what you want to do, which Johnson did. The Great Society, the War on Poverty, this was his vision. Plus, he knew how it all worked. He knew how things went in and out of committees, and he also knew that you could not pass the Civil Rights Bill when when Kennedy was president, because he knew they were not getting those that bill out of committee. He knew the Southern Democrats were not allowed out of committee. You have to know, like I say, the nexus between politics, policy, and government. You have to know that. And if you're forceful enough, I believe you can get things done. And that's it for the show. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.